0: Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbellay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with David Van Eyres, who wears a number of hats, including being an emeritus professor in psychology at Sonoma State, a marketing consultant, but I first found out about Dr. Dave through his podcast, Shrink Rap Radio. Dr. Dave, for people not familiar with your work, can you please give some introduction and how you got into podcasting?
1: Sure, I'll be happy
0: to do that let's see, Uh,
1: originally I'm trained as a clinical psychologist planning to be a psychotherapist and uh, got my PhD at the University of Michigan and shortly after that I took a job as a professor at Sonoma State University which is part of the California State University system and so I really lived out most of my career, (laughs) most of my professional career there at Sonoma State University. And one of the things that drew me to that particular psychology department was a, uh, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, and this department stood out for its tolerance for a wide diversity of, of interests within psychology because psychology is a terribly broad field. And I was particularly interested in the areas of what came to be called humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology. And here was a department that was open to that orientation. So I was particularly attracted to it. And then after some years went by and I had achieved the status of full professor, I began to kind of look around and say, "Hmm, what else can I do? Well, originally I had planned to be an electrical engineer. I'd been a amateur radio operator as a kid, and was fascinated with science and technology, and actually was Originally admitted into into undergraduate program, into an engineering program, and uh, for reasons I won't go into, I ended up switching out and majoring in creative psychology. But then along came the whole computer revolution in the in the early 80s when when uh, personal computers started to take off and i kind of slapped the side of my head and said oh wow i should have become an engineer this is clearly where the engin- where the excitement and the energy has moved to so it was as a result of that feeling that i did some networking and discovered qualitative research qualitative market research consulting as a way for me to get involved in the emerging technology industry. So for just about a quarter of a century, in addition to being a psychology professor, I was also doing lots of focus groups for companies like Apple Computer, Texas Instruments, and other major players. And so really had a front row seat on the emerging uh, technology industry. So given those early technical interests, it shouldn't be... uh, too big a surprise that when I heard about podcasting, that somehow the, the technology of it certainly appealed to me. The, uh, the communicative potential of it appealed to me. Having been a ham radio operator, I was no stranger to sitting in front of a microphone. And so somehow for me, the podcast was a, was a perfect storm of all these different elements of my past coming together. And as I sort of puzzled, well, what could I bring to the world of podcasting? What would my podcast be about? And of course, I realized that over the years, and particularly being in California, I had developed an incredible network of acquaintances, of people who are on various leading edges of psychology. And so that's how I got the idea to do an interview show which also was perfect for me since
0: my whole market research sub-career was all about interviewing people as well. You very neatly missed one aspect of your, your background in your uh, introduction, and that is that you're a world-class expert on the San Francisco Bay Area Zodiac Killer. You've written a book, This is the Zodiac Speaking, and you give interviews, and you're, you're a world expert on the Zodiac Killer. What fascinates me about doing things like reading books and watching television and seeing films, is that you walk away from the material at the end of it. You may reflect on it a little bit, but it's not a particularly intimate experience. Can you give some discussion to your ability to divorce yourself from the material in some regard with the Zodiac and how this has been a kind of continuing legacy in your life? Yes, well... Back it up just a little bit, I'm glad
1: you pointed out that omission, because that has turned out to be an important chapter in my career, one that was not particularly sought after, I have to say. I am not a person who has the hobby of following serial killers and so on, but it was while I was chairman of the psychology department at Sonoma State University that I received an email, kind of out of the blue, from someone who said, "Uh, I wonder if you'd be interested in analyzing some letters from a serial killer. And so I'm generally up for anything, (laughs) anything new and different. And so I wrote back and I said, well, I don't have any particular expertise in that area, but if you want to send me some samples of these letters, I'll noodle around with them and see what I come up with now, at this point, I didn't even know that it was going to be about the, the infamous Zodiac case. And so he sent me some letters and I did noodle around with them and I, and I sent my noodles back to him. And I got another email back. And in the meantime, I, w- I was a little nervous. I thought, well, you know, I don't know who this person is. Maybe he's the serial killer and he just kind of wants a psychological read. So he got back to me via email again, and he was very excited, and he said, you know, I'm writing a book about this, and and based on your analysis, I would really like to reorient my book around your reactions to to the letters. And what I'd like you to do is you'll be working blind about the details of the case And you'll just be analyzing the letters, and and then we'll see how your deductions, based on these letters that were sent to the police and to to the press by the serial killer, how those line up with the forensic, with the deductions that we can make from the forensic evidence. So I did my analysis blind. I didn't even know that it was a Zodiac case until the Zodiac started identifying himself in these letters. Now... I wanted to do as a person who is oriented towards what we call depth psychology, which means I subscribe to the idea of a dynamic unconscious, unconscious as described by Freud and Jung and others. What I really wanted to do was to try to put myself in this serial killer's head. And I realized that there might be some risk in doing that if I became uh, you know, over-identified somehow. Might I s- start suffering from terrible nightmares or go mad or or what? You know, one doesn't know. But somehow I, that I felt that that was what I needed to do to really try to understand what was going on. And so as much as I could, that is what I did. I'm happy to report that I think I had only one nightmare and I don't even remember the details of that. So that's pretty good having immersed myself in the materials for a period of oh, of about three or four months of intensive work when we were working on the book. And I suppose it just says that I've got good psychological defenses, that I'm good at compartmentalizing or intellectualizing as the uh, psychological term goes. So somehow I'm able to create compartments that other people might not be able to do quite so easily. I was able to keep these two elements of my life separate
0: and, uh, and it troubled me too much. You were able to identify a kind of technical obsessive component in the Zodiac, which perhaps had not been you know, noted by people researching the case previously. Is that taking elements of your own interest in ham radio and things like that and, and mapping it onto the Zodiac?
1: Well, I think I was acutely aware of that aspect of the Zodiac's personality because he, he, was, he seemed to be a pretty uh, technically adept and inventive guy. He created, I haven't researched this deeply, but I think he created the idea of a laser sight before they existed. What he did was to tape a pen light onto the barrel of a pistol and used that to aim the pistol in the dark in one of his first attacks and uh, this would have been in the very late 60s I don't know that laser sights had been invented yet and I don't know if maybe that technique already existed but uh, to me it seemed like a clever technical detail he also designed bombs fortunately he didn't set any off although I'm in touch with another author who advances the hypothesis that the unabomber and the zodiac are either one and the same or were driven by very similar dynamics and i have to say i started reading this other fellow's book doug oswald on the unabomber and the oswell actually doug oswell on the unabomber and the zodiac and i started reading that book as a skeptic and he really marshals a lot of very compelling evidence. So um, I, I would say that's still an open question, but, but but clearly the Zodiac drew drawings of bombs that could have worked, even though as the Zodiac, he didn't execute on that. And there were other things that he described that would suggest a technical facility, somebody who, who was probably good with his hands, who probably understood things like electronics and so on. And, And so, yes, the boy inventor in me was able to relate to that aspect of this uh, horrendous serial killer.
0: Moving on from that topic, I brought you on the podcast because listening to your shrink wrap Radio podcast, it occurred to me that there are elements in artificial life and artificial intelligence and where those two fields currently ven that deal with the idea of an artificial self or virtual consciousness or these kind of things. These are emerging terms, but the analysis that I'm seeing without a background in psychology could probably benefit from someone such as yourself with a very rich psychology background, and I think the listeners, too, could could greatly benefit from hearing you talk about the, the psychology of the self. When I came to set up this interview, I went on Wikipedia and looked at the psychology article on Wikipedia and all the related entries, and it is a very, very complicated field for someone... Starting in psychology with a kind of background in artificial life, perhaps biology, perhaps physics, computer science, where do you think people should start? Well, boy, that
1: is a challenging question, I must say. And, um, and I'm not surprised that you found your initial foray into psychology somewhat daunting. Years ago, there was a major historian of psychology. I think his name was... Uh, Sigmund Koch, as a matter of fact, K-O-C-H, if I remember correctly. And he set out to write a a volume that would sort of document, give an overview of psychology, exactly what you were looking for. And as he, and this, I mean, we're talking, I think he started the series maybe in the 1950s, somewhere in that area. And even at that time, what he discovered as he tried to do a thorough job, was that psychology is not a single field. And his, what was to be one book, ran into some large number of volumes. I don't remember exactly how many volumes there were, but there may have been 20 or 30 volumes or more before he was done with this encyclopedic overview of psychology. In fact, the American Psychological Association has something like 52, I haven't kept track of exactly how many, but it's 50 plus separate divisions, each of which represents a distinct, highly codified area of psychology. For example, there's a division of humanistic psychology, which I've been a member of. There's a, a division of media psychology, of Uh, the history of psychology, of uh, behavioral analysis, and and so on. There are just lots and lots of divisions. And the breadth of the field is such that there are psychologists who speak almost entirely different languages. So there are psychologists, for example, who devote themselves to the study of uh, the neurology of, of the squid, and they just study starfish or squids in the ocean and they study their nervous systems and, and they know everything there is to know about that, or at least <laughs> nobody knows everything about anything, but they're, you know, they're on the frontiers of knowledge in that area. Contrast that with someone like myself, who's you know, very much into what you would consider the soft side of psychology. And uh, there's not a whole lot of overlap. So I think there are, as you've alluded, there are people who are, you know, I, I, I suppose you could cleave psychology down the middle. One, one major division would be those who work hard in the area of psychology as a natural science, as being allied to the natural psych, uh, sciences, and who have strong backgrounds in life sciences or the physical sciences, as you suggested, in physics or in biology and and so on. And then there are people who are more aligned with psychology as a social science or even as a philosophy. And and much of my postdoctoral work has been kind of more on that side of things, although my my temperament is i'm sort of midway and i can talk to people in both camps because i still have that sort of engineering side of my brain
0: one of the interesting things that is emerging from contemporary artificial life and artificial intelligence is the idea of the self it goes by various names embodiment theory phenomenology of the body these kind of things but i think aside from the philosophical ramifications there's a kind of deeper discussion with regards to the psychology of the self. For people not familiar with that at all, can you give some introduction to the psychology of the self and how it maps onto both hard and soft psychology? Okay, I don't know if I can do the latter part, but I can
1: tell you, that, and I'm not sure I'm totally up to date on self theory, but the self is thought to be a relatively late Comer in infant development in the young child, and it comes along at a place where uh, you know it's thought that initially human consciousness, the the infant's consciousness, exists in an undifferentiated state where it's being bombarded by stimuli, and and initially there's not much sense being made of those stimuli. Gradually, there's a process of, of differentiating and sense-making that goes on. Of course, we now understand, too, that in some ways we're hardwired to, to respond to certain sensations and so on to, to organize them in certain ways. For example, we're hardwired for the acquisition of, of language much later on. And, and there may be other things that we sort of have a uh, kind of a hardwired propensity to organize in certain ways that our brains are structured in that way. But initially, we're kind of uh, floating, if you will, just as, just as we're floating in the amniotic fluid, we're floating in a world of undifferentiated sensations. One of the first things that's thought to emerge then is... The, the sense of the experience of double-touch, that is, that there is a difference between how it feels when I touch a table and when I touch myself. If I use one hand to touch my other hand, that has a different feeling than it has when I touch a table with my hand. And the thing that's different is what's called double touch. In other words, I'm getting the sensation not only from the hand that is doing the touching, but also from the body part that is being touched. And it's thought that it is this sense of double touch where the this bodily self and even the psychological self, that that's where the roots of selfhood lie course that becomes more and more finally differentiated in the infant as time goes by uh, initially we think that uh, you know things just kind of appear to us magically and, and we live in a, in a kind of magical world and and we begin to realize that there's some things that we have control over namely our body there are other things that we don't have direct control over but we may exercise indirect control over, for example, summoning mom by crying, or you know, uh, moving from hunger to satiety by crying, as and mom being the intervening variable there that takes care of that. So the development of self is a gradual process, and it emerges then into what I think of as the hallmark of self is the ability to be self-reflective which is a kind of a recursive phenomenon if you will and and it's a very slippery one i think we still don't fully understand the nature of self and what it is to be conscious Uh, and this is still right on the frontiers of psychological thinking i uh, i don't know if you're aware of the buddhist meditation in which one is instructed to observe their, their self, to, to ask oneself successively the question, Who am I? And so there you are sitting in meditation and you say, oh, Who am I? And you realize that, okay, that you're asking, you're the person who's asking the question. I'm the person asking the question, Who am I? But then I'm also aware that. I'm observing the person asking the question who am I? So who is the observer? So I take a step and try to take a step further back then into self and say who am I as the observer? But yet there is even there there's an observer. And so there is the seemingly infinite recursion of self-observation. And to me, this is something about the hallmark of what it is to be self, or, or to have the experience of self and consciousness. So my guess is is that as you go down in down the you know the phylogenetic uh, chain, is that I'm not sure how much of a sense of self there would be. I guess there would be some, uh, some rudimentary
0: sense of me and not me but not the self awareness component it is a fascinating thing I found a stray kitten who was probably three four weeks old when I found her she's now a very large house cat but when she first discovered a mirror it was a fascinating thing to watch her initially react as if it was another cat and then realize that it was actually her Yeah. Babies do the same thing. Yes, exactly. This is what fascinates me, and it, it's relevant to artificial life and artificial intelligence and a kind of movement up from uh, simulating kind of single-celled entities into insects and things. And but they've done some research, I seem to recall that they've done some research with
1: with chimpanzees, either chimps or monkeys, I don't forget, don't remember which, where they uh, put a dab of paint uh, on the chimps, head or face um, and they do it in such a way that uh, that um, the chimp presumably isn't aware of it from a, from a um, tactile point of view. I don't remember the exact details of, of how to do that but, but the real question is, will the chimp, when it looks in the mirror, recognize that it looks different? And in fact they do. So that suggests that at the level of the chimpanzee there is already established enough of a sense of self, a kind of a map of self to recognize that, Whoa, what's this? <laughs> what's this daub of red? You know,
0: that doesn't fit into my map. Certainly. You find this with feral cats as well. They're very, at a distance, able to establish whether they're of a similar genetic line through the, the fur mapping. And this is something I found fascinating, the idea that whilst they are very uh, nose-sense-heavy with regards to familial connections, even at a distance with wind blowing and things like that, the only sense that they could have is with the fur mapping, and they're able to pick up those kind of things. What fascinates me from what is coming out of artificial life and artificial intelligence currently is that a lot of these high end aspects of the self as we discussed with regards to humans are being mapped through perhaps even skipping animal psychology in terms of a hard uh, psychology and and being mapped down onto these uh, in the most physical cases robots in the least physical cases simulated entities do you think there is a sleight of hand problem with regards to taking human ideas of the self and mapping them onto obviously non living entities?
1: Well, yes, there probably is. You know, we seem to grasp at metaphors uh, very readily, and uh, what do they say? The, the map is not the territory. You know, so, for example, Freud's original uh, psychology is sometimes the, a plumbing metaphor was used you know that if, if the pressure builds up too much something is going to burst in a sense it's going to come out of the unconscious it's going to come out as a as a symptom and so on and, and I, I suppose prior to that you know we thought of the mind and the human being as being like an intricate swiss, swiss watch that we were a machine a very elaborate machine and of course the metaphor du jour is the computer and that we are just very complex computers. So I suppose we apply those same kinds of maps or metaphors, uh, it sounds like in a reverse process now of trying to imply those you know, in a downward direction. And, and they may shed light and open up some new directions, but they will probably also reinforce some of our current misconceptions.
0: That would be my guess. In um, biology, and to a certain extent uh, primatology and various other things, there's this idea of the anthropomorphism break, which is that you cannot in any way ascribe anything to do with humans to animals.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. And people who are just, who want to be rigorously scientific, they will insist on that but hey, I'm one of those soft side guys and I'm sorry, I just can't, you know, you hang around animals and uh, I just cannot believe that they don't have emotions that are similar to our emotions and so on.
0: We're kindred spirits there, Dr. Dave. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) What is fascinating to me in your podcast is you take ideas like synchronicity, which is fundamentally, I think, a, a soft psychology idea, And you map it down onto hard psychology with regards to a discussion of probability. For people who come to Artificial Life, Artificial Intelligence, with a very keen understanding of what the hard sciences are and what the soft sciences are, can you give some discussion to how they can map some of the insight from soft psychology into the hard sciences? (laughs) I don't have a terribly ready
1: answer for that other than to, I think what, what we get from the soft side are ideas and intuitions about how things work. We have leaps of insight that come to us from an intuitive place. And that's definitely kind of coming from the soft side, if you will. And then the job of the scientists then is to take those intuitive leaps and to test them out and often I think to demonstrate them in in an objective enough fashion to get other people to buy into it, other scientists to buy into it. I'm struck at the history of science. I'm not sure that it proceeds the way that we're taught in school. And the way that that it tends to be taught in school is that scientists are completely objective. They start off with sort of a blank slate and 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 they test out an idea with, uh, with complete objectivity, and they're completely willing to abandon that idea if the experiment doesn't turn out. In fact, it seems to me that the way it works in the real world is that a scientist will become seized with an idea. And it may not be an idea that they even totally understand at that point, but they will become seized with a notion of how things work in some specific domain, and be absolutely convinced ahead of time that that's how it is. And it may take them 15 or 20 years of doing research that disconfirms that that's how it is, until finally they get the research just right, so that they're able to confirm their original hunch
0: if you were to set a reading list for contemporary artificial life developers artificial intelligence robotics folk in soft psychology what would your top five books be well you know i'm very interested in the Jungian perspective and
1: and jung was very even though he's considered kind of soft side both both jung and very interested in science and regarded themselves as scientists to some degree. Both were trained, in, you know, in medicine. Uh, Freud was particularly trained as a neurologist, and he fully, I don't think he would be surprised to, to discover, you know, if he were to come back magically today, uh, that so many of the things that he described that we now understand in terms of specific regions of the brain and, and, uh, and, and the dynamics as we understand them now, uh, I think you'd be totally open to that and, and excited to see that things had moved in that direction. Similarly, Carl Jung was, uh, was in contact with Einstein and they exchanged letters back and forth and Jung was in, in uh, touch with other people who were at the uh, cutting edge of, of quantum mechanics and there was a sense that that some of the the vague sounding things that Jung was talking about in terms of concepts like synchronicity and archetypes and and uh, non <laughs> causal a causal a causal universe was actually fit dovetailing very nicely with uh, with some of the quantum mechanics stuff. So I would. Uh, You know, I'm very much influenced by Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey and how that maps onto artificial life. I have no idea, but I really recommend reading uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces and just kind of planning that somewhere in the back of your consciousness. Uh, You know, I wonder, going back to the discussion of the Zodiac too, at some point, people who are working with artificial life they might have to wonder about the question of evil and where does evil come in and where will that come in as one develops artificial life kinds of entities. And certainly Isaac Asimov wrestled with those sorts of questions in developing his laws of robotics. And um, so as we move further along, you know, those kinds of questions might might become very relevant, even though they seem like, oh, that's a very soft, philosophical sort of question. I've recently interviewed Philip Zimbardo, and uh, his new book, which touches on the nature of evil, and what his research reveals is that a major locus of evil is not necessarily in the individual as much as in the environment, and that... Certain organizational structures, like if you're if you're put in Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo, and you're asked to be a guard, you may end up doing some things that that the world would regard as evil. And uh, and perhaps if you had never been placed in that environment, you would never do anything like that. And so I think that kind of thinking could conceivably impact. as they work in artificial life to realize that, hey, it's not all built into the the agent, but there's also something about the kinds of structures in which these, the social structures that will emerge in which these agents find themselves operating. Uh, So there will be that whole realm there that will need to be explored and tinkered with and, and discovered. Book on consciousness. Well, the, uh, an important book is *The History of Consciousness*. I'm forgetting the author's name, but that is a very seminal work in psychology. Uh, some years back, there was a book on consciousness. Uh, the subtitle was something in the bicameral mind, and it kind of looked at the way in which, and, and of course, there's now there's a lot more research about how we seem to be split brain or split consciousness uh, entities because we have our um, what some people characterize as left and right brain thinking. We know that the left uh, hemisphere and the right hemisphere control different functions and have very different qualities. And in fact, seem to there does seem to be a different quality of consciousness. And then there are the different levels of consciousness associated as one moves from, from the cortex down to the what you'd call the lizard brain. So I think reading in those areas uh, would be particularly important.
0: So you've come back to some kind of introduction to artificial life, purely prefaced through doing this interview. But in your initial ideas with regards to what artificial life could do, Can you see any way that artificial life developers can meet up with the psychology community? Yes, uh, probably by attending
1: (laughs) conventions, you know, the American Psychological Association, uh, reading relevant journals and so on. But, you know, I think a lot of the... uh, A lot of the excitement in artificial life probably has been relatively informal with people going to early conferences and meeting one another. I listened to some of your shows, and so that's probably where I got that impression is that there's been an informal network that has been important and that people kind of stay in touch with one another and stimulate one another's thinking. So to somehow people need to... uh, figure out who the exciting, uh, forward-thinking, radical psychologists are, and they are out there, and I can't tell you who they are off the top of my head, but I've suggested one friend to you who I think could provide a very interesting interview, and I know there are others out there, so I uh, just do lots of networking.
0: That was uh, Professor Davis for the... Yes,
1: yes. Uh, Douglas Davis, who uh, recently retired from Haverford
0: College. Dr. Davis, it's been a real privilege to to jam with you today and t- touch on a number of topics, a few of them artificial life related. Do you have any final thoughts for the interview? No, I don't. Other than just to say uh,
1: thank you very much, I'm very flattered to have been invited. I've listened to your shows and and I have just been in awe of the caliber of other people that you've interviewed, so I'm flattered to have this opportunity.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Dave.